This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. It's great to be back with you. I was off for a week. Uh, our son got married, and so we traveled up north for that. That was a lot of fun. But uh, as we were driving, though, I told my wife that the traffic just seemed, no matter like what time of day we left, uh, where we were traveling, how we were coming back, the roads were crazy. And since last summer, travel in the U.S. has uh, increased. And uh, that has included here in the state of Missouri. We'll talk with Russell Burdett, owner of Your Lake Vacation, to talk about how traffic uh, has been affecting the Lake of the Ozarks area. And Missouri has the seventh largest highway system in America, with more than 34,000 miles of road and 10,000 bridges to take care of. MoDOT Assistant Chief Engineer Eric Schrader says hundreds of bridges are listed in poor condition. So there's about 10,400 bridges on the state highway system. There's another 14,000 that are on the, the system that's maintained by cities and counties. So we have a lot of bridges in Missouri, but the MoDOT, we take care of 10,400 of them. And that's everything from bridges that can be 25 feet long to ones that are over a mile long. So there's a full full range in Missouri of size and number of bridges we have. Well, let's talk about the condition of the bridges. I'm curious, like, what categories there are. You know, is it um, sure. good condition, poor so, condition, or, or tell me of the levels. Sure. So all, all, all of our bridges are, are inspected on a regular cycle, generally every two years. So all these bridges are looked at with our primary goal of making sure we won't re- uh, we want everything to be safe because our families drive over them just like everybody else's. So that's our, our first primary focus is making sure they're safe. And then we we rate their condition from fair uh, and then down to poor. Now, once one gets in the poor category, if it uh, sinks below that, we will close a bridge before it becomes unsafe. So poor is kind of the the, the group that we're looking at that uh, is our one of our lowest ratings before a bridge has to be closed. But we also have a large number that are in fair condition. So we have to do a balance of working on doing some preventative maintenance in the fair condition to make sure they don't become poor, and then also trying to replace ones that are poor uh, as as we can with the system. So right now, our draft construction program is out called our STIP, our Statewide Transportation Improvement Program. And in the next three years, we plan on working on 815 bridges in Missouri. And that's a, that's over a billion dollars worth of bridge work alone. Uh, to, to keep on addressing this, because one of the things, as I told you, we have over 10,000 bridges. Almost half of them are older than 50 years old. And 50 years is about a, a normal lifespan for a bridge that in Missouri has to go through winter, salt, and all the other things. You know, it's just like your home that's exposed to the weather and exposed to, to traffic. So half of our bridges are over 50 years old with a really large group built in the 60s and the 50s right after the war when the interstate and and road construction really picked back up. So that's uh, important for us as we manage this, as we know we have a lot coming at us. Uh, and that's why we keep, you know, as, as we work on this list, about five years ago, our number of poor bridges was about 920. So we've, we've decreased it. But each year, about 100 bridges fall into the poor category. And we're able to right now get more, a few more than 100 taken off that list. So we're we're able to gain a little ground, but we also know with when you have a big system that's as old as ours, that each year some of the bridges, just by age and traffic and all the other factors, are going to fall into the poor condition. Uh, so it's a never-ending cycle. How do you decide which br- bridges are prioritized over the other ones right. that are eventually closed? Yeah, so so part of it is looking at 
the condition of the bridge. As I mentioned, we want want to keep them all safe. So just because one's poor doesn't mean that it's that it's not serviceable, right? It it's mean that we're having to do more work on it to maintain it. Our crews are out there more often, things of that nature. Uh, so there's lots of factors into prioritizing this. We also work, look at uh, what part of the system they're on. Some of these have have a bigger impact. You know, so bridges on the interstate uh, carry much more traffic and have a bigger impact uh, than a bridge that may be on a, a lettered route that doesn't serve as many people. So we have to do a balance there across the, and it's a big state, right? So we have to look at this on a regional basis with money, but also what part of the system they're on and how that impacts people as well. So how many uh, do we currently have that are uh, considered to be poor? How many are closed? Right. So right now we have 804 that are in the poor category. And I think there's just a few of them that are that are, I haven't looked at the report. Uh, but there's a handful that are, are currently closed because of condition. Now that number changes because, as I mentioned, our inspection crews every day are inspecting bridges across the state. And so, and at the same time, we're doing uh, construction projects across the state. So new projects are opening, bridges are being replaced, and at the same time, our inspectors are out. So we try to kind of pick a point in time to talk about because every day these numbers move a little bit uh, with all the work that we have going on. But 804 is is our, our poor that we have right now. MoDOT Assistant Chief Engineer Eric Schrader joins Show Me Today. I'm Elisa Nelson. We are talking about the state of Missouri's bridges. Do you have any major bridge projects going on this summer that are expected to really impact traffic? Yeah, let, let me talk about a couple of, of programs we have going on. And, and one of them's in, in northern Missouri. It's called our Farm Bridge Program. We were able to, to secure grant money from the federal government to work on specifically rural bridges. And uh, that's a, the acronym FARM that we use to title that is Fixing Rural Access to Missouri. And those are, are mainly, most of those bridges were all one-lane rural bridges that we're able to uh, re- replace with a federal grant. So that's mainly in the northern part of the state. The other thing going on statewide is we're in the last year of the governor's focus on bridges. In 2020, the governor worked with the legislature to come up with funding to replace or repair 250 of these bridges. Uh, right now, all of them are under contract, and 230 of them are already complete and open to traffic, uh, with the goal of, by the end of this year, we'll be pretty close to all two, 250 bridges complete. But let's talk about some of the impacts that are going on with major bridges. So in mid-Missouri, of course, it's the Roachport Bridge over the Missouri River. Uh, that one, you know, later in June here, we'll start moving traffic to one of the new bridges. Uh, so we'll be shifting traffic as, as that project goes on. Uh, in Kansas City area, of course, the Buck O'Neill Bridge, the replacement over the Missouri River there, has has traffic uh, detoured as we're building the new bridge and now uh, new connections to the interstates with it. Uh, in rural Missouri, on the Mississippi River Bridge at Chester, there uh, we haven't actually started construction yet, but we've we've picked a design build team and they're starting to do preliminary work uh, with, with the anticipation of later this year. Uh, seeing work on that replacing a, a narrow and old Mississippi River bridge. Those are, you know, those are really big bridges and those, you know, they cost hundreds of millions of dollars. But we also know uh, the local bridge that is the one that maybe you or I drive on has just as important an impact as how I get to work, get to the school, get to church and those type of things. Uh, so people can look on our, our website actually to our traveler map and see up to date daily what projects are out there. 
and see traffic impacts, not only from uh, our work on bridges, but also we have a large resurfacing program going on. Uh, this fiscal year, we've just awarded $1.8 billion in construction work across Missouri, uh, one of our largest years in in decades. Uh, but we know that work doesn't come without some inconvenience to the public uh, to achieve all that. So this summer, you'll be seeing more cones and more signs uh, to make these improvements. And we really ask everybody to go to our website and take a look at that traveler information map uh, so you can see the up-to-date information on, on where we're working and, and uh, find your way around. All right. Uh, MoDOT traveler information map. And also just a reminder, people need, drivers need to be very careful as they're going through work zones with all yeah, that, the workers. That's, that's our, that's, that's completely, you know, it's, it's important to us that everybody, our workers are, are at risk on foot out there and motorists as well. We want everybody to make it home safe. So we need everybody to really work with us this summer to have a little patience, uh, to watch out for each other and by all means, put your phone down, buckle your safety belt uh, so that we can make sure everybody goes home safe at the end of the day. Hey, Eric, um, I remember this has been a few years ago, so my memory is a little fuzzy on if it was called like a certain program, but there would be uh, bridges that I believe that MoDOT would take offline so they were no longer in your system, but people could like adopt them or something like that, or they'd be put <laughs> right. up. What, what was that called, and is that still around? So the, the, that is still part. So as I mentioned, we have over 50 of our bridges are over 50 years old. So some of our bridges actually qualify as historic structures. And working through all the, the uh, rules and regulations for permitting, one of the things we have to do with some of the historic ones is see if you can find a reuse to it. Uh, so there are times with some of our older bridges, we will actually put it up uh, to see if a community or a group would want to take the bridge to maybe reuse it in a park or repurpose it for something. Uh, sometimes it's not feasible. Sometimes it is. So occasionally you will see advertisements looking for a home for a, 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 a bridge that qualifies before we, uh, if we can't find a home for it, then we, we just demolish it and move on. But that's part of the uh, uh, historic preservation acts that we work through is finding alternate uses for some of them when we can. All right. Eric Schrader with MoDOT. If you want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Every day we take steps to keep the people we love safe, but some health risks are easy to miss. Ticks hiding in the yard can spread germs like the ones that cause Lyme disease. Mice searching for food can spread bacteria that makes us sick. Mosquitoes lay eggs in standing water and can spread West Nile virus and more. Cockroaches are drawn to water in the home, leaving behind allergens that can trigger asthma attacks. Common pests can threaten our health. Learn how to protect your family at pestworld.org. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training, along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on United States Deputy Sheriff's Association, please visit usdeputy.org. Discover the fascinating world of nature right here in Missouri with Discover Nature Notes. Today, let's dive into the incredible life of beavers and their impact on our ecosystems. Most of their activity happens at night. Beavers build dams to create deeper water for their lodges, 
and protect their young. These dams provide a hub for a variety of wildlife to travel, rest, and find nourishment. Explore the trail cam footage online where you can witness the diverse creatures that visit when a beaver dam is constructed at discovernaturenotes.com. Did you know that beavers mate for life and are fiercely loyal to their families? They live in colonies, including adult parents, yearlings, and kits. Beaver structures create thriving communities for wildlife species that also help with erosion, water quality, and even fire damage protection. Uncover the secret life of beavers and explore more at discovernaturenotes.com. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today. Elizabeth King is a biological sciences assistant professor at the University of Missouri, and she was awarded a five-year, $1.9 million grant to expand her research on genetics involving the study of fruit flies. We've gotten this grant. We, we work on fruit flies in my lab. We've been working um, on, I guess I've been here almost, almost 10 years, um, so we've been working on this system, trying to understand generally um, what is going on under the hood of complex traits. And all we really mean when we call a trait complex is, is that it's not going to be these sort of simple stories that you, you know, probably first learned about in biology class where there's sort of just one gene and it determines this one phenotype. Most of the traits that we're actually interested in are much more complex than that, are determined by lots of different genetic variants. Uh, the environment matters a lot. Uh, they interact with one another. It matters what other genotypes you have at other locations in the genome. And so it's been kind of a big problem for scientists to try to uh, get at the, the underlying mechanisms the genetics of what's going on with those traits. And so that's uh, what we work on and, and what we're going to be working on with this grant. So harnessing the power of the fruit fly to develop uh, lessons about what these genetic traits are. So my first question mm -hmm. is sort of what led to you studying specifically the fruit fly? Sure, yeah. So they, fruit flies actually have quite a long history in genetics. Um, they were, they were used really early on in some of the earliest studies of genetics. And so what that, you know, the, kind of that history has led to them having a lot of genetic tools available that, that aren't available in other systems. So often we have more things um, that we can, more little tricks that we can do um, with fruit flies. We can order up different genotypes, for example, that have genes knocked out <clears throat> just from a stock center that exists. Um, that's, that doesn't exist in most other organisms. Uh, their genomes are pretty small, so that means that we can do quite a lot of sequencing. We do a ton of genomic sequencing and gene expression sequencing, RNA sequencing in my lab. Um, 
for, you know, uh, pretty cheaply um, because their genomes are quite small. Um, and so we just kind of have like a lot of this background knowledge already on fruit fly model systems. There's a lot of different labs that are working on them. And so we can ask these questions in this system um, that, that aren't possible in other systems just because of uh, all of the knowledge that already exists, all the, the data sets that are already out there that we might be able to pull together and figure out some, some answers to these more complex interrelated traits um, and things like that. Um, and then uh, we do also, one of the approaches that we take in my lab is we will actually evolve populations of flies. And so, for example, we might have a, a population of flies that are all, you know, mating together in a big population cage. We might have a couple of thousand flies in a single cage. And we can do things like put them in a little wind tunnel that's sort of like a flying treadmill, essentially, for flies and select the ones that, that are able to get the furthest. And we can do that over and over again and evolve flies that are really good at flight. Right, um, and then we can watch their genomes change by sequencing each generation a set of those flies, um, and that is only feasible in something where you can go from an you know an egg to an adult uh, in a couple of weeks, which is what uh, what is possible in fruit flies. So we can do those experiments pretty quickly as well. So that's some of the reasons why they're useful. And before we continue on in the conversation, if you're tuning in late or if you want to hear more, be sure to subscribe to Show Me Today wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple or Google Podcasts. All you have to do is in the search bar, type in Show Me Today, click download and or listen and take us on the go with you. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth King, Associate Professor in the Division of Biological Sciences on the University of Missouri. We're talking about biology, specifically better understanding complex genetic traits a rather fascinating study, and uh, we were most recently talking about how she is studying the fruit fly. She was awarded recently a grant of nearly $2 million to expand her research on genetics using this fruit fly model. So let's sort of uh, switch gears here. With what you discover and then what you apply, how does that or how is that then applied to, for example, humans? Sure. Um, so, you know, humans and fruit flies uh, share some ancestry. All all organisms on Earth share some an ancestry, right? So it's not particular necessarily to that model. Um, but because of that, we can we can use some of the lessons that we learn in fruit flies and apply those to humans. So, uh, for example, you know, something like 75% of of uh, disease. Uh, connected traits in humans um, have some ortholog where we can identify that same gene that we know, um, you know, has, has uh, you know, common ancestry essentially in the fruit fly. Um, and we can then, you know, potentially link those things. So, uh, you know, some of the, some of the genetic variants that we discover that are important for the different kinds of traits that we're studying, you know, we might be able to then um, apply those to, to some lessons in humans, right? Those would probably be done by human geneticists that are, that would follow up on our studies, right? But that connection is always possible when we're looking at these kinds of traits. And then another thing that really motivates us is, is, like I talked about a little bit already, this has been a really hard problem in science in, you know, essentially figuring out the underlying genetic mechanisms for these more complex phenotypes. And really, I think the field is, you know, if science is trying to figure out, like, how do we best approach these these traits? You know, we know one of the lessons that we've learned by trying to, you know, study them for for many years. We've we've been able to, you know, sequence human genomes for a couple of decades now. And one of the lessons I think is that a lot of the the 
things don't fit into these sort of simple stories, right, where there's really simple explanations and we can point to a very specific genotype and that does one thing, right, um, and that the reality seems to be much more complex. And so some of the questions that we have are, well, how do we actually approach those studies? How do we design better studies? Uh, should we be looking at, you know, only at the genomic level and then one high-level phenotype? Do we need to look at traits at many multiple different levels um, and and then try to connect those things better. And so we're really interested also just in that kind of methods development and how those lessons might then allow us to kind of better approach these kinds of studies in maybe some human systems. A follow-up, if I may, you were talking a little bit sure. earlier on, um, uh, mentioned the wind tunnel potentially uh, mm -hmm. evolving and things like that. Uh, on, yeah. on that same sort of idea is the sort of premise for this question here, and that is, um, could this research then somewhere down the line be used to, I don't know, prevent can some types of cancer or Parkinson's or heart disease or something like that? I mean, I, I, I think anything is possible, right, <laughs> in terms of sort of what we figure out, um, you know, any any lessons that we find out about, um, you know, essentially the physiology that are underlying these kinds of traits, I think, you know, we, it's hard to predict exactly where that could go, right? So, you know, we, we are one of the traits that we're studying is flight. It's not the only trait. We're also studying things that are tied to, for example, lifespan and reproduction. Um, and, you know, the variants that we find there, you know, certainly could have potential implications for, for all sorts of, of phenotypes that are connected to those things down the road. That's going to be, you know, sort of um, further into the future, certainly, right, and probably not done exclusively in our lab. We are really a basic science lab. And so any anything that is directly connected to humans, we would probably collaborate or some some lab that's, that's working directly on human genetics would kind of take things over from there. But we're, but we're really hoping to kind of like get the ball rolling and, and sort of, you know, see how we can better understand these these traits in, in a sort of precision medicine type thing. How do we actually approach that if we want to get to the point where a genome in your medical file is actually really useful right now? It's useful for some traits, but for most of them, you know, we, we don't really have quite enough knowledge yet. And so we want to try to figure that out a little bit better. And I guess on that same idea, the notion of, you know, you mentioned lifespan, the idea that, mm -hmm. you know, our climate continues to change on a daily basis and potentially using said research to uh, apply to an adapting and a changing environment, whether or not we could potentially, you know, live in either warmer or colder climates or just things like that. I'm just thinking out loud here. Sure. Yeah. One of the one of the big goals of this grant is trying to understand, like, when does it really matter what your environment is to know what some particular genetic variant um, will have, what effect that will have on your phenotype? Because those things can be really different, right? Um, you know, different different genotypes can can cause different effects in different kinds of environments. Whether that is like you just talked about, some temperature environment, or whether it's your nutritional environment. That's something else that we work on quite a lot. Is how your diet and your genome interact to produce some phenotype. Um, and we already know that those things are also, you know, have a genetic basis, how how individuals respond to the environment. And and so that's also a, a main focus and, and a great way to be able to use flies because you can take the same genotype of flies and we can rear them in multiple different environments to try to actually observe those effects directly. Concluding question here, and that being, what is the path forward? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we're really hoping to see come out of this grant, um, you know, like we're just getting started. Like you said, we were just awarded this. And so we've got, uh, you know, great. We're really excited about the next five years and what we're going to study. And I think what we're hoping will come out of it at the end of it is, you know, like I talked about, some really key lessons about how do we approach these complex traits better? Do we need to measure multiple interrelated phenotypes at the same time? Um, Should we be focusing at the gene expression level more than we are, um, you know, kind of how do we leverage these genomes a little bit better? And so those are the lessons that we're, we're hoping to get. And, you know, maybe we'll talk again and we can follow up on that. Absolutely. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth King, Associate Professor in the Division of Biological Sciences at the University of Missouri here on Show Me Today. And this is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school. 
How about the incident today? Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. We're talking about travel since last summer has been on the rise. Russell Burdett from Your Lake Vacation is with Cameron Connor talking about the big increase in travelers this summer at Lake of the Ozarks. We're looking at our booking pace compared to pre-pandemic, pandemic, and and then last year being our first post-pandemic year. And uh, what we're seeing is that our booking pace is down just a little bit, about 6-7% from last year, um, but it's ahead of all the previous years. And and so what we're seeing is that while the booking pace is down, our consumed revenue, which is people that have actually stayed with us for April and May, were all-time records. So that tells me that people are just booking a little bit later than they normally have over the last, say, four or five years. But they're coming. So, And I think one of the big things there is that so many people found out about the Lake of the Ozarks during the pandemic that didn't know about us before. Maybe they'd heard of us. They hadn't really you know, seen any pictures or traveled here. And then with all the coverage we got about uh, how the Lake of the Ozarks was crazy for letting people come here, um, all the people that saw the lake and then visited the lake, I think we're going to see the effects of that for the next you know, five to ten years. Six, seven, eight years ago, we're doing almost triple the numbers that we were doing back then. That's the extent. And and we beat the pan- pandemic numbers, which were crazy, uh, because as you know, during the pandemic, we had the perfect storm of uh, people could work remotely. Kids weren't in school, so they didn't have to worry about that, and ki- or kids were doing school remotely. And then the government was giving out free money to everybody. And so you had the perfect storm of people could travel. They didn't have to worry about work. They didn't have to worry about school, and they had extra money. And so for 20 and 21, we saw numbers that we will never, ever see again unless a similar situation happened. So so last year we were down um, about 37% from the pandemic numbers, right? But we were still up 27% over the pre-pandemic numbers. So if you look at 18, 19, 22, crushed 2018, 2019 numbers, um, even though we were down from the pandemic numbers. So, and we're still seeing that uh, as we move into uh, this year is that we're so far ahead of what we were doing in 18 and 19. And as far as the booking pace and stuff like that, we're ahead of 20 and 21. And for those of you that are just now tuning in, this is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here with Russell Burdett. He is the owner of Your Lake Vacation. It is a company that basically makes your vacation rentals in the Lake of the Ozarks region as easy and as simple as they possibly can be. And Russell, that's where I'd love to turn this. Let's talk about Your Lake Vacation. Can you maybe just say 
everything that's offered with it and also maybe how it compares to something like an Airbnb, which is what I'm assuming a lot of people are more familiar with if we're talking the general aspect. So we're a a professional vacation rental management company. We manage, currently manage about 152 homes and condos around uh, most of the Lake of the Ozarks. So we're all the way from Camdenton and Sunrise Beach area, all the way to Rocky Mount on the North Shore Horseshoe Bend, um, Osage Beach, Lake Ozark, Lynn Creek area. So we cover most of the lake. And uh, we've been in business 35 plus years. I've been here 20. Uh, exponential growth over that time. Um, we're, we're doing about eight times the business we were when I, I bought the company in 2008. So we're doing about eight times the business we were back then. And the major growth has been as people have known uh, Verbo. Uh, the RBO did an extensive campaign about 10 years ago, and they continue to, but where they started showing people that you could rent a home or condo and get amenities that you just don't get with a hotel. I mean, there are reasons to rent a hotel. You're on a business trip. You're only there for a couple of days, whatever. You know, there's a reason to rent a hotel. They serve a great purpose. But when you're traveling with a family and you don't want to eat out every meal, then you can rent a home or condo and get a full kitchen, uh, a lot more living space, extra bathrooms a deck overlooking the water, a boat slip, a boat dock, you know, so these are things that you just don't get with a hotel, no matter where you're in, pretty much. And so uh, as people started to see that, we started to see the transition where people were now renting the homes and condos. Then there was an influx of people purchasing homes and condos to rent out. And so uh, when I started back in uh, 2004, there were about a thousand homes and condos for rent at the Lake of the Ozarks. Today, there's over 3,000 homes and condos for rent at the Lake of the Ozarks. And it's a good thing because we've lost hotel space, and there are so many more people coming to the lake today that if we didn't have those homes and condos for rent, then the people wouldn't be able to come here. They wouldn't be able to stay. So so that's where we've seen a huge increase. With our business, uh, we manage uh, probably about 110 condos and about 40 homes currently. Um, and we see uh, different types of people. So people that want a pool, they're looking for a condo situation. And then people that want the boating experience, the, the private dock, those are the people that rent homes. We're seeing a mix of people. So back 20 years ago, it used to be uh, primarily families, about 75% families. And today the mix is about 50% families and then 50% couples, singles, uh, just groups traveling together. The next point that I'd love to turn this conversation to is is to your business itself and also the competition aspect of it. Because in your previous answer, it seemed as if because where I was going to focus this question was your your relationship, I guess, and the competition aspect of things like Verbo, VRBO and Airbnb and how that impacted it. But it almost seemed from your last response as if it actually was kind of like a symbiotic relationship that grew all of these (laughs) companies up together. How has that process been? Well, what, what you're looking at with a VRBO or an Airbnb, those are just platforms. So those are rental platforms where people or companies can advertise. So all of our properties are advertised on VRBO and uh, and some other. We don't utilize Airbnb only because of the dynamics of how they collect money and pay money and screen guests. Uh, we like to screen our guests, and with Airbnb, we just can't screen them. But then there are individuals who advertise on Verbo and Airbnb, and so the term is just now the term is just used that I have an Airbnb. So uh, really, you have a rental home, and you're using Airbnb as your advertising platform is the correct terminology. So so there are a lot of individuals out there, and here's the difference: is um, I rent from individual when we travel with my family, we rent from individuals, we rent from companies. It just depends. I prefer to rent from a company for like with us. Recently, we had somebody, uh, the house, the air conditioner went out and we had to move a guest. Well, 
we have 152 properties, and a lot of times we have something that's empty that we can move the guests to. If I had been renting from, or this person had been renting from an individual and the AC went out, there's nowhere to move. So they're just without AC, you know. Um, and so that's one of the things about renting from a company. We have 24-7 staff, emergency number you can call after hours. If you need something, we have staff that can run something out to the property. Uh, we have maintenance personnel. We have relationships with heating and air conditioning and all that sort of stuff. So so if there is an issue, uh, I think you get a many times, not all the time, but many times you get a better response renting from a company that has multiple options to help you rather than an individual that may be, you know, uh, living in Nebraska or Hawaii, and it's really tough for them to to manage the home and, and take care of things when when something goes wrong. So I think that's one of the advantages to using the company. So and there are a number of companies down here. We are the largest, but there are a number of companies down here that provide you know uh, vacation rental management and then obviously offer properties for rent. And the wrap up questions that I'd love to ask Russell is, and it's going to sound like a no brainer. <laughs> But maybe for people who haven't spent extended time at Lake of the Ozarks, or maybe maybe there's corners of the states where people that just haven't been down to that area yet, why is Lake of the Ozarks a must-see summer destination for Missourians and anyone else traveling through? Well, I've lived here since 1976. So I've lived here over 40 years, and I've seen the growth. Uh, you know, the road system has changed quite a bit. Uh, the dynamics of the Lake of the Ozarks has changed. You know, back when I was a kid, there were two... Uh, water shows that you could go to. There was Fort Osage, which is like a miniature Silver Dollar City. Uh, there were a lot more family attractions on the Lake of the Ozark Strip, Bagman Dam area. So I've seen the dynamics change over the years. But the one thing that hasn't changed that has made uh, this destination uh, probably the number one destination in Missouri is the lake itself. You know, it stretches from Bagnell Dam up to Truman. Uh, it's about between 93 and 99 miles long, over 1,200 miles of shoreline. And we're one of the few lakes in the United States where people can own uh, the shorefront, the waterfront. And so unlike some places where you can rent a home, even if it's on the water, some places you can't even have a boat dock, you know. Uh, and so this is one of the unique places in the United States where you can uh, not only own property that, that touches the water, but then you can rent that as a vacation. So you have the ability to step out of your home. Uh, onto the deck overlooking the water and then walk down to the dock and you can park your boat there. Uh, you can swim off the dock. Uh, you have a great view. And so that makes this destination unique. There's so many different things. There's over 200 fishing tournaments on this lake every year uh, from professionals to amateurs. You know, you can water ski, you can jet ski, you can boat. We have two large boat races, the shootout. Uh, we have the lake race, which was last weekend. Um, so there's just so many different things that can be done on the water here. Uh, that you don't uh, that you don't normally see at a, at a lot of destinations, and I think that makes us unique. We're centrally located, which is great. Uh, if you're looking for a family getaway and you don't want to, uh, you know, you just want a weekend, we are a weekend destination. So St. Louis is our number one market. Kansas City is our number two market. Missouri overall is our our third biggest market when you look at that. And then Illinois, about 26% of our guests come from Illinois. And then the others are the surrounding states, Kentucky, Nebraska, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, that kind of thing. So it's easy to get to. You know, you can spend a weekend here. Uh, you can spend a week here if you want to. But it's uh, uh, because of our location and, and, uh, and, and the, in the lake itself, you know, we have just an awesome opportunity for people to come here, relax, and enjoy the lake again, which is – then we have the state park. So you can enjoy the lake, and then we have three state parks, including Haha Tonka, that people can enjoy. So there's a lot to do here. Um, we're necessarily, you don't have to, it's not a, we do have attractions, but 
that's not all we are. We have other things that you can do as well with nature. Basically a must-see spot if you're in or surrounding the Show Me State area. This has been Russell Burdett, owner of Your Lake Vacation. Russell, thank you for joining us on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Hey, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And if you tuned in late or you want to hear more, make sure to search Show Me Today, the Voice of Missouri, wherever you get your podcast. Since Missouri's agricultural community joined together to help support the launch of Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids in 2017, the drive has generated 11,224,132 meals that have all been donated to Missourians in need. Together, we can get Missouri food products on the plates of hungry Missouri children and their families. Visit MoFarmersCare.com slash drive to learn more and join the effort. One in seven Missouri children is food insecure, not knowing where their next meal may come from. Drive to Feed Kids is a year-round effort of Missouri farmers, agribusiness, and farm groups to address food insecurity in our state. Through meal packing events, gifted food products, hog processing, and monetary donations, the ag community provides support to the agencies serving our most vulnerable citizens. Visit MoFarmersCare.com slash drive to learn more. That's MoFarmersCare.com slash drive. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids opens the door for every Missourian to make a difference in the fight against hunger in our state. All proceeds are dedicating to feeding Missouri's network food banks who work daily to alleviate hunger. Visit MOFarmersCare.com drive to learn more and join the effort. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. Among children, the numbers are even higher. To ensure Missouri children have the food they need to thrive, Missouri's agricultural community launched Drive to Feed Kids six years ago. Visit MoFarmersCare.com drive to learn more and join the efforts. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today. Our final segment, Anthony Morbeth, is with Republican Senator Rusty Black of Chillicothe, fresh off his first session as a senator. After previously serving in the House of Representatives, he's off to a good start. He sponsored several bills, two of them, which uh, were passed in the Missouri legislature. They've got more. Senate Bill 75 and Senate Bill 20, sponsored by Senator Bernsketter from uh, Cole County, uh, these two bills ended up being uh, almost identical, 
by the end of session. So hopefully the the Senate the governor decides to um, at least sign one of the bills. There are provisions in the bill that uh, deal with PSRS, which is Public School Teacher Retirement System, and that's what the bill initially began as. Senate Bill 75 is something I've been working on for four years. It's really uh, a fix to something that I made a change to in 2018 as a state representative, and everybody was on board and thought it was good, and then when it became law, we found out there were unintended consequences so we've been working on it since that point, and uh, of course the COVID year fell in between there, and nothing much uh, was accomplished that year. But I'm very happy that that uh, those PSRS provisions have been taken care of. Uh, for listeners, it's it deals with retired school teachers, primarily getting them possibly to stay in the classroom for another couple of years. They're retiring it as early. You know, we have a shortage going on throughout the state trying to put uh, good qualified teachers in the classroom. So there's a little bit of an incentive. If you will stay in the classroom for 32 years, your retirement uh, multiplier, which ultimately ends up being your check in retirement, will be a little bit higher. It also allows those retired uh, teachers to go work around school systems in non-teaching positions and be able to earn a few more dollars to help uh, fill positions, whether it's bus driving in a cafeteria custodial or maybe mowing the yard and keeping up the grounds because there's shortage in that area as well. And because of limits in the past, people have not been able to fulfill those positions, retired teachers, so it helps with that. And then we talk about critical shortage all the time within schools, trying to find somebody to teach in a special special education classroom, a science classroom, a math classroom, and today, elementary classrooms we're having trouble. And this will also change working after retirement and allow teachers to work up to four years after they've started drawing their retirement instead of two. I chose that four-year number because that allow schools to try to talk some junior or senior in high school into going to school to be a teacher and come back to that school district and like many businesses are doing today, offer some incentives for that student, whether that's uh, help pay tuition um, or various things that they could offer to get that student to come back there in the school system work. So that gives enough time for that retiree to fill the position waiting on that kid to come back there and hopefully fill the, fill the job. And there were other provisions around teacher retirement as well. So the next thing for us to do is go through some of the other provisions. Do you want to do that? I'd be happy to do that. I know that uh, several other things were added to the bill. One sizable portion includes uh, emperors and uh, mosiers, um, and, and and how it relates to that, and and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that would be more along the lines of like cleaning up language or clarifying something versus adding something that's completely new. Uh, what do you think? That that is true. The majority of the Mosiers and Impers, because they're found in statute in the same place, the vast majority of that, I think the majority of us would consider clean up language. I know I would. I serve on the Missouri State Employees Retirement System Board. Um, and this bill has been a bill that uh, I had carried in the House for two previous years and was un- unable to find a vehicle. We got close 
And then, of course, the Senate shut down a little bit early there for a couple of years, and it didn't become law, didn't make those changes. So that bill has finally uh, made it all the way through. And another emperor's uh, piece is the changing the rotation or making, forming a rotation of active employee members to their board. At this point in time, I think the number is correct. They elect four members, and all those go on and off at the same time. But with this language change, it will split those into two go on, they for X number of years, and they go off. And the next year, two more go on. So I don't think I'm explaining that well, but it'll put a rotation on those active members instead of the chance that all four members would leave at the same time. And that was something the Emperor's Board had been asking for for several years. So that was also included in this bill, Senate Bill 75. We're chatting with Republican Senator Rusty Black of Chillicothe here on Show Me Today. And uh, before we continue on the discussion on Senate Bill 75, I wanted to mention to our listeners, if you're tuning in late or if you want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. You could listen to us on the go, not just on your local radio station that carries Show Me Today. Uh, I I wanted to ask you about this as we bring the discussion specifically on Senate Bill 75 to a close. Because uh, th- this bill, or at least a, a sizable portion of this bill, focuses on teacher shortages and the desire to loosen restrictions on retired teachers working, I wanted your take specifically because uh, there was such a focus this legislative session on teachers in Missouri, from things like teacher pay and and things like that. So do you think, in your professional opinion, that the Missouri legislature did enough to address teacher shortages this year? I don't think that uh, one legislative session, I'm not sure five legislative sessions, are going to fix the problem that we have now in schools across our state trying to um, get enough teachers to fill positions as baby boomers, et cetera, retire. I spent 33 years in a classroom, uh, five of it in a small 1A school, Nottaway Holt, and between uh, sitting in both Nottaway and Holt County in Missouri, and then retired from Chillicothe. And we've seen this, I'm going to say shortage coming on, for years. I do think it's going to be a long process. There are more things done. Did the Missouri legislature this year do enough stuff that next year we're going to wake up and the teacher shortage is going to be gone? The answer is absolutely not. But did we do things that's going to make an improvement? Is there still things to come? I believe the answer is yes. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show me today. 